We read of these wonderful words in St. John's Gospel account, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For from our, our, uh, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Uh, saints of God, It is this prologue here that I can read much more of. About maybe three years ago, I think we've been going on in this, that so captured me that I remember telling Pastor Antonio that after we do uh, our study on the doctrine of God and who God is, then I would like to do a study on the doctrine of Christ and, and consider all of what pertains to the doctrine of Christ. And he thought that it was a noble thing to do. I read a few things already on who Christ is. And I didn't uh, think it then, but when I began to study the doctrine of Christ, um, I soon came to realize that, number one, this is much harder than I anticipated. Probably the hardest thing I've ever had to study in my life is who Christ is and how it relates to what Christ has done for us, and how do we live in light of that. But then secondly, I found quickly that um, as long as God has me on this earth, then I found one thing that I can cast all of my thoughts, all of my energy, um, all of who I am into. And it is studying who Christ is. Uh, the reason I say that, saints, is because this month is our last month in Christology. Um, after these three weeks, uh, I will no longer do any topical sermons on who Christ is. Uh, we will talk about Christ for sure, um, but no more of uh, these sermons. And I hope and I pray that uh, these these lesson sermons have been of some use to you, considering who our Christ is, what He has done for us, and has heightened your love for Him. Uh, after we get done in these three weeks, starting next month, we will consider and go through uh, the book of Colossians. And then after that, uh, if, uh, if I have not given myself too much of a headache, we will consider, uh, the book of Exodus and we will, um, go through that for, I'm sure, a long period of time. 
Um, the queen of science is, saints, is definitely the study of God and who God is. And if the queen of sciences is studying God and who God is, then the very apex of whom we study is going to be Jesus Christ, who has revealed to us who our God is. Saints of God, what we're going to do uh, today and for the rest of the time we have together in Christology for the next three weeks is we're going to take everything we have considered and boil it down to just 20 or 30 minutes of summarization. The reason I've given me that time is because um, any time past that, then I think you might lose the big picture of what's going on. Uh, there's so many details when we talk about Christ. There's so many... There's so much ink that's been spilled considering and debating uh, the person of Christ and what He's done for us. We're, we're, I mean, we're still debating now. Um, whom did Jesus Christ die for? Um, we're still debating now when Jesus Christ is coming back. Um, a lot of our debates in this life, in our Christian world, centers around Jesus Christ. What I'm going to do today, saints, is I'm going to summarize for us the person of Christ, and what it means for us. The person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. This is undoubtedly the great mystery of the Christian faith. I mean, you have the doctrine of the Trinity, and then you got the person of Christ. Um, why is it a mystery? Because it's an, un, it's an event that happens in time that will never happen again. And what happens in this event is the bringing of two worlds. It's the, as Thomas Goodwin would say, when, when the eternal Son assumed human flesh, heaven met earth and kissed one another. It's the meaning of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is something that, of course, it's alluded to in the Old Testament, but this is something that many might have not even dreamed of have happened. That yes, Someone will come to redeem Israel, but would this, would the someone that come be God in the flesh? Saints, indeed, the one has come to redeem spiritual Israel is God in the flesh. That's what Revelation gives to us. This is outside of the natural order of things, God becoming man. However, it is not nonsense. And so, when someone asks you, how do you make sense of the doctrine of the Trinity? Or that, that, doesn't, um, that doesn't seem rational enough. Or does it make sense that there is one God who takes on a human nature? Or there is a virgin who gives birth to a human person. How does that happen? Well, saints, we can do the deed of considering those things from a philosophical standpoint, from a scientific standpoint. But one must be enlightened by God in order to believe these things. And once you're enlightened by God, you understand quickly that this is not nonsense. It's not nonsense. If God created the world out of nothing, mind you, nothing is nothing. So it's not as if God had a piece of nothing and then out of that nothing He creates it. God creates by the word of His power, then God can surely become man, can He not? Just as God can surely save a wretched sinner like us, which He has. The person of Christ, saints, is such a mystery. It is the hardest thing you can study. But it is, in fact, the most rewarding thing. It's, it's one of those things where when you study it, you're saying to yourself, 
man, am I even making any progress? But saints, even the 5% progress you make on studying the person of Christ is well worth all of the type of progress you're going to make in studying the various sciences and philosophies in the world. Just 5% of knowing who Christ is is well worth the study. The hypostatic union uh, is the union of Christ's humanity and divinity into one hypostasis, okay? That's what's called the hypostatic union. When we considered our person of Christ, we could say that Christ is one person with two natures. Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, um, teaches that as dogma. The problem with that, though, is how does that work? How is, there, how is he one person with two natures? So is he, is he like the cartoon that I used to watch when I was a child, Cat Dog? You know, is he like um, those those animals we used to draw when we say, man, what if there's a what if there's a zebra and it got mixed with a lion? Is it that type of thing? Um, is he like that? Is he like Superman? Um, where you know Superman has these uh, he's you know he's powerful, but then when he's Clark Kent, he's kind of you know meek and humble. How is he, saints? I can't give you. Um, I can't. I can give you a. a, a a, a, a taste and a, and a small analogy, creaturely analogy of the hypostatic union, but mind you, there's nothing in the world that compares to this. There's nothing in the world that compares to who Christ is. It makes him utterly unique. What is a person, though? A person. The person, simply put, is who we are. It's who we are. More technically speaking, a person is the one who does things. It's the, the active subject. So if you're walking, right, and you saw someone, what would you tell your significant other or your child? You would say, whoa, look at that person. Because that person is walking, talking, like me right now. I'm, I'm a person that's moving my hands, right? A nature, though, is what makes up who we are. Nature, essence, things like that. It is what we are composed of. So the reason why you cannot fly like a bird is because you don't have a nature of a bird. But if you have a nature of a bird, then you could fly like a bird. So what dictates me as my person is going to be my nature. The reason why I talk to you as human and as a rational animal is because I have a human nature. I have a humanity. Okay. When we think about the relationship between persons and nature, it's simply this. Persons act according to or through their nature. Okay? Persons act according to or through their nature. Again, the reason why you can't do the things that dogs do is because you're not a dog. If you have the nature of a dog, you can do the things that dogs do. Okay? Um, <laughs> amen, brother. <laughs> um, but, but since, though, you have a nature of a human then you do things humanly, okay? <clears throat> well, how are we to think of Christ then? Well, this is where everything gets really, really, really fuzzy. If someone asks you, who is Jesus Christ? You would say, Jesus Christ is truly God, yes. But he's also truly man. He has two natures. He has two natures. This is why, again, it's so unique because there's nothing in this world that has two natures. Nothing. Nothing in this world has two natures. When we think of saints, uh, the eternal son assuming human flesh, what's the first thing that we should not think of? Well, the first thing we should not think of is simply this. When God takes on human flesh, he stops being God. That's what many want to think. That's what many want to say. If you walk out of here and say that uh, when God takes on a true human flesh, 
He had to divest himself of his divinity. He had to put aside some of his divinity to squeeze room for his humanity. That's heresy. We don't, don't believe that uh, and don't ever believe that. If God can, if God can make the world out of nothing, then surely he can become man without losing his divinity. So Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, does not alterate or change his godness in order for him to be human, but rather, while being truly God, he is truly man. He is truly man. This is an important point to note, saints. We read of this definition um, of the hypostatic union so that the whole two perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together one person. Again, whole, perfect, and distinct natures. Everything of what it means to be man, God assumes. But when he assumes them, they're not inseparably, they're not, they're not ever separated from one another. They're so closely united to one another. God so closely identifies with humanity that we can say that God died on the cross. I mean, that's how close the union is of Christ's divinity to his humanity. That we can say that at Lazarus' tomb, God cried. That he takes ownership of all the things that happen in Christ's person. Okay? Without conversion, composition, or confusion, these two natures came about, or were united, rather. Without conversion, composition, or confusion, simply put... You have these two natures, and they don't do this when they're united. And they don't do this, or they start becoming a mixture. Okay? Christ's divinity and his humanity remain, remain distinct. Never separate, remain distinct, but they're never blended together. They're never blended together. So much so that where Christ's humanity has now taken on all of what it means to be God, and Christ's divinity has taken on all of what it means to be man. They don't wash out one another, but they remain distinct. When the person of the Son assumed a true human nature, our confession says that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. The Council of Chalcedon, says that the distinction of the nature is being by no means taken away by the union. So, when the eternal Son assumed the true human flesh, they remained distinct, okay? But rather, the property of each nature being preserved. So when the eternal Son assumed human flesh, He remained truly human, and He remained truly God. And concurring in one person, the one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but the one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> when Jesus Christ assumes a true humanity, and here is the big, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this and then we're going to, we're going to move on. Here is, the, here is the big, big thing. And what trips up a lot of, of people also in, the, in church history is how can Jesus Christ have a human nature without also being a human person? How can he be a human? How can he have a human nature without being a human person? This is the big thing the stories was was considering. It doesn't make any sense. And the church tradition, or the tradition of the church, has simply said this: Well, when Jesus Christ assumes, or rather, when the eternal Son assumes a human nature, he gives that human nature personality. 
I know it's it, that's that's that that in itself is really hard to to grasp, but that's what the church confesses. That the eternal Son gives personality to the human nature, and that human nature then is now grounded in the eternal Son. The biblical basis of this simply is this: John one fourteen, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Cyril of Alexandria, if you uh, want to do any reading, the unity of Christ, Cyril of Alexandria. Pick that up. The word uniting to himself a body and flesh animated with a rational soul substantially was ineffably and incomprehensibly made man and called the son of man and not that according to the will only or good pleasure or again by the assumption of the person alone. The natures are different indeed which are brought about into true union. He uh, who is both Christ the Son is one. The difference of the natures on the one hand is not being destroyed in the consequence of this collision. It simply puts, again, reiterating what we've been saying, when the eternal Son assumes a true human nature, um, there, there, is no, there, is, there is no clashing that goes on. But they, but they, but they, um, they, they, they stay um, intact. That is, He remains truly human and He remains truly God. Um, so, we can also read of Romans 1.3, Colossians 2.9, and 1 Timothy 2.5 that speak of this joining together. Now, saints, this is not just merely a discourse in metaphysics. The reason why this is really hard, even for myself, to even talk about it is because we don't talk about, we don't talk about ourselves in this manner. We have, done, we have done away with talking about persons and natures a long time ago. And mind you, even in college, you don't study metaphysics per se. You're not really studying what it means for a being to be a being. So the hard part in Christology is just getting over the language barrier, which is also the hard part in Trinity, right? Man, what does person mean? What does nature mean? How are we, how are we to think of these things, right? The reason why this is important, saints, is because the very base of the person of Christ is God, which means that the very foundation of your salvation is God himself. God Himself. It was God who became flesh. It was God who hung on the cross. It was God who shared tears for us. Mind you, the way He's able to shed tears, the way He's able to bleed, is via His human nature. His human nature allows Him. You see, God couldn't die. God couldn't shed tears. God couldn't bleed for you, properly speaking. So here's the mystery of the Incarnation. Here's the glory, glorious news of the Gospel is that he, he, he not finds a way in a sense of he's searching, but let's just say loosely speaking, he finds a way to do that which he cannot do. God who cannot die finds a way to die. And assuming a nature that would allow him to die. Right? That is, that is, that is the mystery of the incarnation. That is the, that is the great news of the gospel, is it not? That is the great news of the gospel. Jesus Christ needed to be truly God, saints. Because he needed to add, and what we needed also, is for one to die for us that would add weight, infinite weight to his death. Someone was asked you, how do you know that, you're, that you'll be saved for all eternity? It's because God died for me. You can say that. It's because the one who hung on the cross and the one that bled, although there were, it, was, it was the bleeding of a man, 
that bleeding of the mind, that man is also united to God himself. So that little drop of blood, even in, even in uh, Christ's circumcision as a baby, is of infinite value. Because it's God's blood. It's, it's united to his divinity. So we needed one, saints, to come and do for us, as, as uh, John tells us, as John tells us, to give to us something that all the prophets of old could not give to us. And that is salvation, reconciliation with God, or onto God, not just for a month or a year, but for all eternity. God does that. God does that. But how can he do that? Because he became man. Because he became truly man. Jesus Christ needed to be truly man to do what? To heal man. This is why an angel doesn't come to save us. This is why some weird creature from Pluto doesn't come and save us. Because it was man that fell in the garden, thereby we need a man to come and save us. We needed one of our nature. Gregory Nazianzus says, If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes saves may also be half. But if the whole of his nature fell, if all of Adam's humanity fell, then it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Then he says, what is not assumed is not healed. Jesus Christ then assumes your mind, your will, your passions, all of what it means to be you, in order to do what? From head to foot, save you. We talked about, I was going to say this for the end, but Pastor Antonio talked about this in the morning, right? We put on the mind of Christ. Our minds are assimilated to the mind of Christ. Well, how, how, how is our mind saved? Because Jesus Christ assumed your mind. By assuming your mind, he heals your mind. And then, and then in the fullness of time, he enlightens your mind to believe what he believes. We'll talk about this at the very end. <clears throat> What's the results in the hypostatic union? What's the results? When the eternal son assumed a true human nature, we read that there's a unique gifting to Christ's human nature. That although he is like us, he's also unlike us. He's, he's like us, but he's also unlike us. Okay? We first saw that Christ's humanity is impeccable. Christ's humanity is impeccable. If you have not listened to this sermon, saints, or if you do not remember the doctrine of, of impeccability, here it is. When we say the doctrine of that Christ is impeccable, what we were saying is simply this, that Jesus Christ could not sin. That Jesus Christ could not sin. Now, we're not saying, saints, that, that um, um, we're not saying that uh, Jesus Christ as God couldn't sin. We're actually saying something more radical than that. We're actually saying that Jesus Christ, in his human nature, could not sin. In his human nature, could not sin. That there was in Christ no possibility, there was no potential for him to sin. Now, what we're not saying is, we're not questioning whether Jesus Christ ever sinned. Everyone believes that Christ never sinned. But again, the question is this, or rather, what we're saying is, there was never an inclination for Christ to sin. That's radical, is it not? Because on ourselves, we think for us to be human, it means for us to sin. Like, we must have some sort of potential to sin. But that's not the case with Jesus Christ. There was no potential for him to sin. Jesus Christ never wrestled with sin like you and I did. In other words, given the right temptation, 
Could Christ have sinned? That's one question I ask people who, uh, R.C. Sproul, if he was here, who believe that Christ could have sinned. Um, R.C., given the right temptation, could have Christ sinned? He would have to say yes. And I'm saying, given the right temptation, could Christ have sinned? And I would say no. But why, though? Why can't Christ sin? Mind you, it's not merely because he's God. It's not merely because he's God. We'll get to this in a little bit, but it's it's because he's been full of grace. Because he's full of grace. We'll get to there in a minute. It was impossible for Christ to sin. It was impossible for Christ and his human mind to sin. It was impossible for Christ, given the right temptation, to sin. And one great defense of this is seen in Christ's two wills. Okay? Two wills. (coughs) WGT said, says, the finite will never antagonizes the infinite will. In other words, simply this. Christ's human will never does anything that the divine will doesn't do. Let me give you an example. Um, There's many times in my marriage where I want Wingstop and my wife wants Chipotle. We have two different wills. Right? And many times my will antagonizes her will. And a lot of times it overcomes her will to where she eats Wingstop with me. What we're saying with Christ is, with Jesus Christ, His human will never says, man, I want to sin so bad. But His divine will, which is perfect and holy, says, no, 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 no. We've got to stay the course. There's never, there's never a conflict within Christ. This is talking, yeah. Um, he also says, um, um, but obeys it invariably and perfectly. Christ's human will always obeys his divine will. I mean, you think of the divine will like this, and the human will is like this with it. It's one with one another. If this should for an instant be, uh, cease to be the case, there would be a conflict in the self-consciousness of Jesus Christ, similar to that of the self-consciousness of the Apostle Paul. So if Christ then was to have some sort of um, conflict in his will to where he wants to sin in his human will, but it, he doesn't want to sin in his divine will, then we can say that Jesus Christ is like the Apostle Paul. Where? Do you remember saying the Apostle Paul says this, the good that I want, that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. It is no more that I do it, but the sin that dwelleth in me. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Remember, Paul was going through this conflict in himself, like the things that I, the things that I, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, that I do. But there is no such utterance as this from the lips of the God-man. On the contrary, there is the calm inquiry of Christ. Which of you convicts me of sin? St. John says in 1 John 3, 5, In him was no sin. There is an utter absence of personal confession of sin. Christ never personally confessed his sin. And mind you, even at the Lord's Prayer, he's giving us a model of how to sin, not that he actually prays that prayer. Because remember, in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. Christ never had a debt to forgive. He was, he was, he was, he would never had a debt that he had to be forgiven of. He was perfect. Okay. <clears throat> so, according to Christ's human nature, uh, he never desired sin. And those desires were never even possible in Christ. Never possible in Christ. Why? Because his will, his human will is always aligned with his divine will. A.W. Pink says, while the mediator was commissioned to die, he was not commissioned to sin. 
So although he assumes that which is proper to us, which is death, right? The effects of the fall, he was not commissioned or ordained to sin. The human nature of Christ was uh, permitted to function freely and normally. Hence, it wearied and wept. But to sin, it did not. Um, I, I, when I was studying this, I, I, uh, I thought of this naughty question, which is brought up also amongst me the theologians, is this, is, well, if Christ can't sin, then what do we say about the freedom of Christ in his humanity? Does it negate Christ's freedom? Is he truly free if he cannot sin? And the answer, or one of the simple answers is this, uh, Christ's heart was always disposed to do please God. That he, his, his heart posture was always to please God. That was his freedom. His freedom was to please God. And that's all that he ever wanted to do. This is proved by Scripture. We read it already. John eight forty six. Christ says, Which of you convicts me of sin? If, I, if uh, I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? We could do many more, but I mean, this is coming from the Savior's mouth. He's telling those, which one of you convicts me of sin? Saints, let me just add, this is important, because if Christ slipped up one time, both outwardly, but also inwardly, we're done. We need a new Savior. This doesn't also mean that Christ's temptations weren't real either. You might say, well, if Christ can't sin, then his temptations are not real. The problem with that, though, is we always experience temptations both outwardly and internally. I mean, they, they coincide with one another, right? Um, Dominga, I love you, sister. When you gave me all that those cupcakes, outwardly I was being tempted. Inwardly, I want to be on a diet, but my flesh overrode that. And so I had an outward temptation, right, that stuck on into the Velcro internally. And it said, eat me. <laughs> right? <laughs> there was never a temptation outwardly, right, that Christ sees and it sticks internally to him. He's only tempted outwardly. That doesn't make his temptations less at all. Um, but in many ways, because he's holy, it makes them more significant, um, more greater than ours. As a result of this hypostatic union, Christ's humanity is given the Spirit without measure. John 3.34, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The gifting of the Spirit, the gifting of the Spirit without measure results in Christ's human nature being full of grace. This is where Christology gets really, 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 really fun. This is where we start linking Christ and us together. We start talking about Christ's grace. If you want to, if, uh, if you want to study something that relates you to Christ in a more profound, in the most profound way you can think of, study the grace of Christ and how the grace of Christ relates to you even now. Christ's humanity from the moment of conception was supernaturally elevated, or we can say that it was deified, right? From the moment of the conception in the virgin's womb, our Lord's humanity received a gift of grace. In fact, he received the fullness of grace. We read, this, read, read of this in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Why, is he, why does Christ have grace to this measure? And one of the reasons Thomas Aquinas gives us is because the one that's, in, that the one that's closest in union to God has, has, the, has the greatest of grace. The, the closest one is in union to God has the greatest of grace. 
Well, there's no one in the world that's closer to God than the human nature of Jesus Christ. Ergo, he has the fullness of grace. Isaiah um, 11, 11.2, you can read, um, but why did Christ need the fullness of grace? Well, there's twofold reasons, saints. Twofold reasons. First, so that every moment in his life, he as man could do the will of God and perform supernatural acts. Saints, you can perform supernatural, supernatural acts right now. In other words, when you do a work, God can look down upon it and see it as a good work. Why? Because you have grace. Grace enables us to do good works and for God to see those works as good works. They're supernatural acts, okay? Um, you loving, for instance, you loving your neighbor, you loving your brother and sister in Christ right now is a supernatural act. It's something that you could not do apart from grace. To love them in the way that you do. So don't undermine those things. Secondly, um, and lastly, Christ needed the fullness of grace so he can distribute that grace to us. Christ needed the fullness of grace so he can distribute that grace to us. John 1.16, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Of his fullness. John just said that Jesus Christ is full of grace. And then he says next in verse 16, And from that grace we receive it. We receive grace. So here's the thing, saints. <clears throat> this is what plagues Protestantism. This is not a mental thing. This is not an imaginary thing. You really and truly receive grace. Now you ask, where does it come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. I mean, when I, when I, what, let this just come live in your, in your home, <laughs> in the very depths of your soul. That the grace right now, this is why it's so important, saints, to, to pay, pay attention when, and during a worship service. Because if God is giving us grace, where it comes down from, it comes down from the head. Christ. Again, it comes from Christ. Christ is the origin of every spiritual grace. And grace is dispensed to us through Him and from Him. Because our Lord in His humanity has the highest possible grace and has the fullness of grace, that grace comes from His humanity and it goes down to the members of His body. So then we make up, and we, I did a sermon on this, we make up the whole Christ. The whole Christ. When we receive grace, it comes from Christ's humanity. As one theologian says, the whole human race depends on Christ first possessing a grace as head, in order that they might turn, um, they might in turn possess it in the body. Meaning, saints, that being conformed to the image of Christ is not merely you being a good person. Don't think that. But rather, being conformed to the image of Christ chiefly is becoming to partake of what Christ is in his person via his humanity. So you're saying, yes, I'm being made in the image of Christ. What does that mean? It means that you are being made into the image of the human Christ. Into what Christ is in his humanity. That is why Christ gives you grace. So you can be like him. This is why you give morals, right? The morals that you have learned throughout the years to your kids. So that they can be like you. Similarly with Christ then. So when we think of grace, saints... Like right now, I'm telling you that Jesus Christ right now is giving you grace. Think of, wait, Christ right now currently is giving me grace. In my souls. 
Now, what's experientially, how do, how do I verify that? By you in your mind or even outwardly amending what I'm saying. There's the link. Okay? From the fullness of the grace of Christ's humanity, we receive grace. Now, what does this do for us, saints? What does grace do for us? Well, simply put, grace makes us a partaker in the life of God. Grace makes us a partaker in the life of God. We're in such, we're in such a, a distance from God. How then can we get to God? By God giving to us Himself, which is grace. He gives us grace. The grace of God, and the grace of Christ rather, supernaturally elevates us. And hear me now. So that you right now, saint, can live the life of heaven on earth. You right now, because you have, you're in union with Christ, you live the life of heaven. Heaven has begun in your souls right now. And then later, Pastor Antonio will tell us how heaven will begin in the cosmos. But now, right now, within your souls, as the Holy Trinity indwells you, as you have the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which correspond to the Holy Trinity, the life of heaven has begun in your souls. The grace of Christ then not only hears our nature, but as the great medievalists will say, it perfects our nature. Grace doesn't destroy nature. It heals elevates our nature and makes us whom we were destined to be. Makes us whom we are destined to be. Saints, this is the motive of God becoming man. If you were to ask, why did God become man? Why did God create the world? So that the world, so that God can be like him. God became man so that man can be like God. Meaning that the highest point of the gospel is not just merely washing away your sins. Which is fine, we need to do that. But washing away our sins, not to put us in a neutral state. But we're back in the garden like Adam. But rather washing away our sins, and then giving to us the life of God, which is supernaturally elevating us. To share in the life of God. To participate in the divine nature. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 39 says, Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man that he might advance our nature. Advance our nature. Saints, this right here is the beauty of Christology, that the eternal Son comes and he gives to us that which he has, that which he has won for us. He makes us, really makes us like him. Maximus Confessor says, for by giving our nature and passibility through his passion, relief through his sufferings, the eternal life through his death, he restored our nature, renewing his capabilities by means of what was negated in his own flesh and through his own incarnation, granting it that grace which transcends nature, by which I mean divinization. Saints, do you see the beauty in this? That Jesus Christ, he gives us impassibility through his passion. Impassibility meaning what? In heaven, you will not cry. Why so? Not because you're in heaven, but because you've been supernaturally elevated to not undergo sorrow. Why? Because Christ underwent sorrow and wins for us the ability to not undergo sorrow. Well, what about grief? What about our, what about our relief? 
What about peace? How do we get peace? Because Christ undergoes sufferings for us. Well, what about eternal life? How do we get eternal life? Because Christ died for us. You see this great exchange, saints. As St. Peter tells us in Second Peter 1, through these, He has granted us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Saints of God, if you ever want to study something um, going forward, I strongly advise you to study the doctrine of deification. The doctrine of deification. The doctrine of deification or theosis or divinization. It is beautiful how we become like God. Again, not become God, but we become like God. We take on incorruptibility. Well, who's incorruptible? God is. We take on some of these properties and attributes that God possesses. As the famous church father Athanasius said, God became man so that man could become God. But we can also say this, that God became man so that man might become truly human. God becomes man so that we can become truly human. What does it mean to be truly human? It means to be in union with Christ. The Spirit takes Christ's grace and His humanity and makes us like Him. Again, this is not merely in the mind, saints, but you also have experienced this. You have already experienced what it means for Christ to be in you. As Pastor Antonio said this morning, that we have put on the mind of Christ, Jesus says in John seventeen three, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Saints of God, when you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it is Jesus Christ giving to you the knowledge that He has in His humanity. So at the very moments of conversion, you are in union with Christ. That you are being supernaturally elevated. This is why, saints, you believe things that others can't believe. Because you've been given a higher light. And this is why God became man. To give us this such higher light. To bring to us salvation. Saints, um, there is much more I can say. There's much more I can say. There's much more that I want to say. Um, but going forward in your studies, I strongly, strongly, strongly encourage you to study the person of Christ. It is hard sledding. But saints, nothing's too hard for the Christian. I can't understand some of the things that many of you men know, you know, how to change oil, how to do this, how to do that. But saints, you can know the things I know. And we can know the things that Christ knows. Because we already know the things that Christ knows. That there is one God who is the Father, one Lord Jesus Christ. There's one Holy Spirit. So, Going forward, saints, consider the doctrine of who Christ is. And next Sunday afternoon, we will consider what Christ has done for us and how these two things relate to us. Let's pray.